Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Ikerk and in this podcast series I speak to leading investors and business leaders about investments and we also take a peek into their personal investment portfolios. We try to get a sense of how they analyze investment opportunities, what shares and assets they invest in and whether they have more hits than misses. And the idea is to identify a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Jan van Niekerk. There is no relation, although we both sat in the same mathematics class at university many years ago, and uh, he went on to become an actuary. And uh, I did not. I became a journalist for all my sins. Jan is currently the CEO of ReCM and the CFO of ReCM and Caliber. He was previously the CEO of Peregrine Holdings and the executive chairman of Citadel. Jan, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you have obviously been at the head of many asset management firms. Uh, are you currently managing any funds? Well, Eric, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, as ReCM, we have one specific fund that I manage at the moment. It's a qualified investor hedge fund um, called the ReCM Flexible Value Fund. Uh, it was set up five years ago, um, basically for the owners and friends and family uh, of ReCM to invest their money in one pool that can be managed properly and you know with a specific objective of generating you know decent returns over time so that's the only fund i'm managing at the moment and then obviously we are also responsible in the group for managing two listed investment vehicles the one is resim and caliber as you've mentioned and then the other one is a story of uh, investments which is domiciled in mauritius but also listed on the stock exchange in south africa that is very interesting that you manage, uh, let's call it a closed hedge fund. But is that a, a typical approach from CEOs and C-suite executives in South Africa to pool their money and to manage it almost collectively, obviously to maximize wealth? Yeah, like, I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to speak for other people. What we were looking to do uh, is to have a way of making investments in a broad range of instruments where we have the most efficiency in terms of you know the, the lowest possible fees and execution uh, and then also to see if we can do it in the most tax efficient manner and also get the administration around that as little as possible and uh, it just turned out that this specific structure which is a qualified investment structure um, gives us most of that benefits it happens to be called a hedge fund but uh, you know i think there's a connotation to the name and the term hedge fund so um, please, you know, we, we do this because we want to make money from investments, not for the sake of calling ourselves hedge fund managers. We will come back to that fund a bit later, but just tell us a bit about your background. Where did you grow up and when did you decide that your career will be in the management of investments? Like I'm, I'm a farmer's son. My family have been sheep farmers in the big metropolis of Pofada, uh, which is up in the northern Cape, just south of the Namibian border. 
Um, and early on in life, I figured out that it's way too hard to make a living that way. Um, so I, uh, I studied at Stellenbosch, as you said, that's where you and I met. Uh, I became an actuary. Um, but early on, even in, in high school, I, I was buying and selling shares through the bank manager at the, the branch in Pofar in those days. And then at uh, university, I spent a lot of my time at the stockbroking office around the corner. I saw at the time in, in Torp Street. And I've always been involved in investments and uh, getting more and more involved in private ventures as well because business interests me. What was your very first share you bought? Uh, it was a company called Rust Platt, Rustenburg Platinum, that's ended up somewhere in Impala, if I'm not mistaken, eventually over the time. So, And uh, the second share I bought was called Vika, V-E-K-A. It was a clothing manufacturer at the time. And the only reason I bought them is because I liked the names and uh, the share chart looked pretty. There was no, no detailed analysis on that. So you live in Pofada, you work, you buy shares through the bank manager and you bought a platinum share. If you held it to today, it should have been really valuable, especially if it is in Impala. The platinum mines have changed their makeup over many years and these assets get swapped around between. So I don't think it was Impala at the time that bought it out. So, you know, I would have received some you know shares in another company in the interim. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't own a hold all, all the way through. I mean, I should have, but I didn't. Let's talk about your investment approach and especially the evolution thereof, because I assume your approach changed significantly from when you were at school and you bought your Rustplatz share to today. Of course, you're a lot more qualified. You have a lot more experience. How did your approach evolve and what exactly is your approach today? So the interesting thing is when you start off, you know, human nature kicks in. And that's the one big lesson that I think if all of us can take from that is, you know, to be a successful investor or to be successful in investing, you need to understand that you will be fighting human nature, your own nature all the time, because all the things that have kept humans alive in the wild works exactly the wrong way around when it comes to investing in listed instruments where the price change all the time. Your, your natural inclination is to want to go with the herd. And unfortunately, that doesn't lead to good outcomes. So my first experience was being a 13-year-old buyer and seller of shares in Pofada through the bank manager. Uh, and the only source of information we had was the Afrikaans newspaper that arrived next Friday, you know, last Sunday's paper. It was by the time the information in the newspaper in Pofada got to me, the guys on the floor at the stock exchange had bought and sold their shares already. So reading the newspaper to make decisions, you know, didn't work then and it still doesn't work today. So that was the first lesson. You, you know, don't invest on the back of what you see in the newspapers. And certainly, if, if you want to invest with the news, that's not going to work. You might go against what the newspapers say. Uh, then I thought, well, if I draw lines on the share graph, you know, on the piece of paper with the share graph prices, then... Then I can figure out what's going on. And then I also figured out that technical analysis works for many people. But again, your personality and your DNA needs to be suited to that way of investing. And if you are bound to second guess yourself, then technical analysis is not a good way to do it. So I had to figure out that that doesn't work for my uh, for my personality. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to have a bursary from Sunlum and I ended up in the investments division with Sunlum. And uh, at the time I thought, well, now I've arrived in heaven because there's all these analysts around here and they know everything about every company. So now 
you know, I was going to be able to use that information and make money from investments. And then, you know, I learned the lesson that big teams of people have desperate sets of views or opinions. So in a big investments team, we agreed on the facts of the investment very quickly. So if someone had to put down a specific company, let's take an example, Sassel, within three to four hours, all the analysts around the table would agree on the most likely outcome of Sassel's earnings for the next three to five years. But then it will take you two weeks to figure out what to do with that information because all of a sudden someone says, but my uncle works at Sassel and he's told me that things are not that well and someone else says, well, but the price is falling, so let's wait for a couple of weeks and so on. So the the disagreement at big teams never come around the facts. It, it arises around the, the, the interpretation and the philosophy of how you want to use those facts to make money. So the realization was smaller teams, you know, make better decisions if you if you want to work in a team and, and not on your own. Uh, and listening to too many people, you end up, you know, in paralysis. You, you're not able to make those decisions. So those were sort of the big lessons. And then uh, at some stage, I managed to read the book, uh, Making of American Capitalists, which was sort of the original book that written about Warren Buffett. And that stuff made a lot of sense, and I then wanted to invest. And like many people, wanted to be Buffett and invest like Buffett. And it took me about 15 years to figure out that you know there's only one Buffett, and that's Mr. Buffett. And the rest of us have to invest in a way that suits your own personality. And I think that was the hardest part of my life, is trying to want to be like Buffett and having to realize that you cannot invest like him and that you have to do your own thing. And once you know, I, I made my peace with that, um, you know, my my investment portfolio started working much better for myself and for for the people that invest with me. You've said a lot of things here, and I want to focus on two of them. Um, the first one is don't follow the herd, and uh, of course that may suggest that you are much more of a contrarian investor, where you go against the the mainstream perceptions. How do you not follow the herd? I think there are two things. The one is to you know, cognitively realize that that's not a good strategy. And I think it's easy when you talk to people to tell them, you know, and, and they will agree. But emotionally, it's, it's difficult. Some people are contrarian just for the sake of disagreeing with other people. I don't think that's a productive way of going through life. I think, um, you know, you, you need to to question, you know, whatever you see in the newspaper or in the media and so on. Someone has obviously thought about that statement very carefully and they want a certain outcome. And you always just have to wonder why are they telling this story or portraying the picture in a certain way? Is there potentially something at the background that's slightly different or that they're trying to hide? So how do you go against the herd? I think it's just like, you know, right, you're a triathlete or an endurance athlete. How do you become... An endurance athlete, well, you just have to practice. You have to do this, the same thing over and over again. And that's why, you know, if, you have, if you're lucky and you have a long enough investment career, then you just practice more, you know, to, to go against what the herd is. And the other way to do it is to just see what the popular opinions are. And there's many ways to figure out. The one is these days you can re, you know, follow Twitter and you can see where everybody is excited about something or they pessimistic about something in terms of their comments. And the other way to find it is just look at the valuations that the market put on assets. So when a company is trading on a very high price earnings ratio, then by definition, many people are excited about that business. 
And when it's trading at a low PE or a low price to book or a high dividend yield, there's you know different ways to look at that. You can figure out that people are very pessimistic about that. So there's a couple of ways to look for places where there's an opportunity to to go against the herd. You also said that your personality has an influence on your investment decisions. How so? I think it is important to understand whether you are an excitable personality. So if you get excited about stuff or despondent about stuff quickly, uh, then you need to stay away from investments where the price of the asset changes regularly. Because whether you like it or not, your emotions and your mood does get affected by your success in the market. If you bought something and the price goes up by 20% in a week, you can't help yourself but congratulating yourself and being excited. Or if you buy it and it goes down by 20%, then you get depressed. And if it happens a few times in a row, you start questioning your own abilities and your role in life. So I think it is important to know whether you are a constant and a stable personality or an excitable personality or whether you are a grumpy personality where you always look for things that will go wrong, You know, if you are by nature cautious. Because those things determine sort of the... the the parts of the world where you should be looking for investments that, that fit your, your DNA. Uh, it's, you know, some people by nature of who they are should be index investors. Uh, but somehow it looks exciting and interesting to, to buy and sell stocks or get involved in, in other securities because other people are making money there. But fundamentally, they're not wired to, to do that. And that's where you get into trouble because you then end up buying the wrong instrument for the wrong reason. And when it doesn't go your way, you sell it at the wrong time for the wrong reason. So I think that is very important to understand your own personality. And nobody else can tell you about that. You just have to have an honest conversation with yourself. So people with different personalities will have different portfolios. Absolutely. And will have joy in their life and profit in their pockets out of different portfolios. And that's okay. You don't have to make money the same way your neighbor does. You also made an interesting point about facts and opinion. You said it's relatively easy to get consensus about the facts about a potential investment opportunity, but it's a lot more difficult to formulate an opinion, an investment opinion based on the facts. How do you look at facts and use it to formulate an investment opinion? You know, the conclusion of all of those lessons are uh, at the moment, the way we operate is, uh, you know, I'm the individual. I take responsibility for executing transactions, so buying when to buy, uh, deciding when to buy and when to sell. I have a team of, uh, of two analysts that work with me on the instruments that we consider, you know, for the fund we manage. They help me with gathering information, uh, you know, doing the calculations to understand where what we call the fair values of, of the assets are. But ultimately, there's only one person that make a decision. The, the issue with how to take facts into executable transactions is as soon as you have teams making decisions, um, because then you compromise. And also what compromise means is, uh, you know, when something works out well, everybody claims success. And when something doesn't work out well, then everybody blames the other people. So single point responsibility is one way, um, you know, to deal with that is one person incorporate the facts, make the decision and move on. And if you're not successful at doing that, then let someone else do that and you spend your time on gathering the facts. Um, the other, you know, just how do you take facts into opinions? I think that is where experience 
helps and where understanding your own way of looking at the world works. And the third one is understanding your own pain threshold. How much pain can you take? Uh, because you know, the way I invest, it, there is a contrarian nature to what I do, which means that I don't discuss my investment portfolio with my friends at dinner parties because by and large, the stuff we buy, they hate, and the stuff we don't buy, they like. So it doesn't make for, for good conversation. And in the last three years, the stuff we ended up buying was not uh, environmentally, socially, or governance-related acceptable. So the ESG crowd didn't like that. But that was the reason why many of these assets became cheap. So keep your ideas to yourself. And I think the fourth point is as soon as people start talking publicly about specific names, and I think that's that's this is an important thing. If you are investing then you have to look at the behavior and the outcome of your portfolio. You know, some of the things you buy and sell will work out and some will not work out. But you have to look at the result of your combined portfolio. As soon as you start talking, human beings tell stories. That's how we go through life. And we always just tell the stories of the stuff that work out well or has worked out well recently. And what I found is once you publicly make a statement about a company or a management team or an idea, then it's very difficult to change your own mind because you have told your friends or you've told people on the radio about that. So you know, part of the best advice is you know, keep, your, keep your advice to yourself. But hopefully you can give us uh, a peek into your uh, edge fund or your fund you manage. Can you tell us what is in there or what sectors you, you like at the moment and where your money lies? So, look, I mean, uh, we can definitely talk about that. The, the fund fact sheet is public information on our website, and there we disclose sort of the top 10 positions. So I think I can speak around that. And part of the positions we have in there, uh, are, you know, we own a company called Lewis Stores, which is a furniture retailer that has been trading very cheap for a long part of time. And the reason, and perhaps this is more an example of a thought process. So, Ben Graham originally coined the phrase a net-net investments, and that's a company where the share price trades at a discount to its liquidation value. And the way we calculate the liquidation value for this company is we just take the current assets. So that's just the cash in the bank and the debt. So literally just all the money they can get in the next six weeks. Uh, and we deduct all the liabilities they have on the other side. So all the leases that they still need to pay, all the creditors they still need to pay, the tax, all of that. And then that value that's left. So at current cash and receivables, less all the liabilities. That's what we call liquidation value. And the share price of this company is lower than that, which means that if you can today go and buy the entire business, you know, collect the money, pay all the liabilities, and you'll have money left. And then you get all the stock and you get all the brands and all the hidden assets on the balance sheet, all of that for free. So Lewis traded at a at a discount to its liquidation value. The business trades profitably. It makes enough money to pay dividends to its shareholders and it's buying back some of its own shares. And what happens if, if a company that is trading that cheaply buys back some of its own shares, the remaining shareholders own more of their own company afterwards because some of the shares have been retired. Um, and that kind of setup and combination is something that normally works out well over time. So we've seen it in many parts of the world happen. And that's why, you know, that was the, the stuff that triggered us to invest and own Lewis. So the share price has done okay. And on top of that, we've received some dividends. So the total return out of that um, has been quite good. And the nice thing is, you know, if, if management does the right stuff in, in a business like that, then we don't have to make another decision. 
decision. They are doing all the hard work on behalf of shareholders. I'm, I'm looking at uh, Lewis's uh, share price performance over the, the past uh, few years. Over five years, uh, the price has uh, risen by 70%, over one year by 40%. Um, and in between it lagged uh, at, at a very low PE, as you've said. Uh, when does these type of investments become a value trap? And, and do you regard yeah. such investments as a value trap? And how do you react to it? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. So, so the risk of scratching around stuff like this is that you end up in a place where you never make money. And that's why most of our investments have a time limit on them as well. So when we initiate an investment after 18 months, I will review to say, well, has this investment, is it panning out the way we know or we have seen in the past how these things work? And if it's not panning out, then we move on. There's no use in getting stuck in something. So just remember, Lewis pays a very high dividend yield. So the, the returns you are mentioning there is just what's happened to the share price. On top of that, we've been paid a dividend yield of close to 10% a year for the last couple of years to wait for the value to unlock. So you have to add that on top. Uh, just mention a few other companies you've invested in. Some of the other assets that we own, uh, I think, was just, uh, is Tungela, which is a coal company that was spun out of Anglo-American in June last year. The origin of the, the investment thesis was that Anglos own some coal assets. Some of that they were in joint venture investors with other mining companies and some they owned outright. Uh, and then the, most of the coal assets they, they managed to sell because their shareholders were upset with American for not being ESG compliant. Uh, and the last bit that they couldn't do was to get rid of the South African coal assets. So in their wisdom, they put all of those assets into a subsidiary company called Tungela, and then they distributed the Tungela shares to Anglo-American shareholders. Those same shareholders that told them that they don't want to own coal shares. So it was clear, quite clear to us that those shareholders, Tungela was a small company compared to Anglo-American. So most of the big institutions then promptly just sold those shares without even looking what the value of the price was. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they sold Tungela at somewhere between 25 and 35 rand a share. Um, and promptly, you know, within a year, I think Tungela paid his first dividend of 18 rand a share. And this year, they probably should pay a dividend closer to 50 rand. So you would have made your, your money back just in the back of the dividends already. And the reason they the, the reason the opportunity existed was because there was just this general sense in the world that it's a bad thing to own coal and coal is going to kill the world and global warming and we must stop it immediately. Whereas the, the real view is that we need to use less coal over time, but you can't stop using it before you have an alternative in place. Um, so the world will still need coal for quite some time. Um, and, uh, you know, Tungela will be able to sell coal to many people in South Africa and outside of the world for quite some time. And the share price, you know, even today reflects a lot of pessimism by investors around this. And it also shows that many people have a mandate from their clients to say, I don't want you to invest in something like that, which means that the demand for Tungela share price is low and, and it's still cheap. Yeah, but the share price has performed absolutely phenomenally since the listing. Yeah. And, and I think in many ways it's an ESG decision um, and not only an investment decision. Some asset managers are actually quite aggressive about only investing in, in, in green companies, if, uh, if you could call it like that. Just uh, lastly, Jan, uh, tell us what has been your best ever investment and what has been the biggest dog you've ever bought? 
Jeez, I'm going to have to think quite uh, carefully. I, I think Tingela is, you know, probably it's top of mind. I, I can dig out some others, but um, you know, that, that's been a spectacular investment um, in in my early years. Um, uh, you know, many people will remember the company Peregrine was listed. Um, I was obviously employed there, but Peregrine was one of those companies which is a financial services company where. After you know the, the small cap boom of the 1990s, all of those shares became very unloved, and I think the share price fell from 27 rand to 1 rand 40. And, and I recall we, you know, as employees, we bought shares at 1 rand 40, and eventually the share price, the share was taken private at 24 rand or something like that. So that was a, a good investment outcome, ultimately. Um, and the worst, I mean, I've, I've bought a couple of things that went to zero. I mean, especially if, you, if you're invested in, um, you know, if you use options from time to time, some options expire worthless. But I mean, that's by design. Uh, but I've had a couple of businesses where, you know, the, the share price have gone to zero. Um, and what you need to do there is to make sure you know, when there is a chance like that, is just to keep the, the position in your portfolio manageable. Come on, which, which, uh, which companies were those? Well, perhaps let me talk about a, a recent experience. Uh, there's a listed company called Rebosis, um, which has an A and a B unit, and there's a lot of uncertainty around the future prospects, uh, you know, especially of the A units. Um, and the outcome there is either the A units is, is going to be worth zero or it could be worth you know, a, a lot more. So, uh, you know, I've made an investment in the BOSIS A units on the basis of the fact that I think, you know, there is a, a chance that it's more positive than not. But the share price has come off a lot this year already because there's there's just a lot more uncertainty. So I think that might have been one of the, the, the worst one in, in recent history. Jan, thanks so much for sharing your insights today. I think it's been a very, very interesting discussion, but we'll have to leave it there. Thanks uh, so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Raik. That was Jan van Ikerk. He's the CEO of RCM and the CFO of RCM and Calibre. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Raik van Ikerk. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.